of issue for all women. Hello there. Welcome to episode 26 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and when I was a kid, I really wanted Lionel Blair to be my dad. Or Matthew Kelly. My mum wasn't particularly keen on either of those choices. She picky, your mum. She's well fussy <laughs> and more power to her elbow. I love the fact that Hannah just made a face there as if that would convey everything she needed to convey <laughs> via the podcast. medium of audio. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good face, though. Yeah. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I'm annoyed at myself for this bright idea of having to keep introducing ourselves with a fun fact. Conversely, uh, and I'm Jen Offord, and I see a lot of Adonis Creed in myself. I've not seen it, but you have been wanging on about it for a good week now. Oh, it's lovely stuff. Later on, I chat with excellent bird, Bryony Kimmings, about cancer and why she's written a musical about it. Author Alison Vale joins us to talk about unsung heroines and her book, A Woman Lived Here. Karina Johnson joins us to talk to us about Hoxton Hall's female part season and being a bird in the arts. Sarah's back with more answers to your live questions. And I do Disney's Basil, the great mouse detective. But first, throbbings, smears... And Bridget Bard, oh, for fuck's sake, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Like a 22-mile bridge between you and the news, except this actually serves a purpose and is actually going to happen. I do like to think of us as a zip wire stopping staggering cock ends in their tracks. As Republicans and Democrats argue over who is responsible for the US government shutdown, Boris Johnson decided to tackle the issue of Trump's will-he-won't-he visit to the UK head-on, by which I mean he wrote about it in his lucrative Telegraph column. If you haven't read it for one reason or the other, let's say you object to having to pay to hear what our Foreign Secretary thinks (laughs) about how he should do the job you already pay him to do, you missed quite an extraordinary piece of writing. No, but really... Who knows what Boris had been watching slash drinking slash reading when he decided to say that the UK-US special relationship is, and I quote, a swollen, throbbing, two-way transatlantic pipeline of jobs and goods and services. He added that Trump should be welcome to the UK while arguing that his administration deserves, and I quote, respect and recognition. No, but really, some of what he's smoking, please. A swollen, throbbing pipeline. I am fairly sure I have received an unsolicited photo of exactly that. (laughs) News just in on the pay gap. Hang on, I'll start that again. Bad news just in on the pay gap, which, thanks to technology, looks like it might be getting wider. In men's favour, in case a cryogenically frozen head just defrosted and is using this podcast to catch up on gender parity. A new report on the future of jobs presented at the World Economic Forum Summit in Davos finds the dominance of men in industries such as information and biotechnology, coupled with the continuing lack of women at the top even in the health and education sectors, is causing gender equality to reverse after years of improvements. According to the report, just shy of 60% of jobs set to be displaced by technology in the next eight years belong to women. Great. The squint and you can just about make it out silver lining is that the younger generation aren't going to take this lying down. And 54% of the young global movers and shakers attending Davos are women. Yay. Yay. Yay, women. Newsnight presenter Emily Maitlis spoke out this week about a 20-year stalking ordeal and how she feared it would never end. Speaking to BBC Five Live's Emma Barnett, Maitlis compared the ordeal to a chronic illness and bemoaned the legal system's inabilities to deal with the problem. 
Maitlis's stalker, Edward Vines, was issued with an indefinite restraining order in 2009 and was jailed last week for 45 months after he breached a restraining order twice last year, though he was first convicted of harassing Maitlis more than 15 years ago. He was also previously able to write to her from prison, which does rather defeat the object. The government have said sorry, though, so that's all OK, isn't it? Yeah, no. She can delete ever having received that letter. Maitlis said, It's not that I ever believe it will stop or he will stop or the system will manage to prevent it properly. She also spoke of the humiliation of having to routinely relive events every time a new policeman or investigator was charged with taking on the case, which obviously is going to happen a fair few times in 20 fucking years. Mm -hmm. And she called for a better system to deal with such incidents. It's almost as if women aren't taken seriously when they speak out about no feeling threatened or harassed. There's no need to or... be dramatic, Jen. Come on. There's nothing new in this. When I worked at a local newspaper 15 years ago, we had a woman who was saying this system is fucked and needs to be repaired. And it seems to me that absolutely nothing has happened in the meanwhile. It's almost like it stalking or being stalked is viewed as some sort of compliment. You know, like being yelled at outside a van. It's like, yeah. oh, you know, it's it's not seen as dangerous when it's incredibly dangerous. And... Well, we'll get on to Bridget Bardot in a minute, mate. Well, I think it's important that Maitlis does speak out because I think it's important that for, for people to, to say publicly and, you know, because she will get attention. But it's also worth saying this isn't just famous women that this happens no, to. No, no, It can literally just be anyone. It can go on for... <laughs> For decades. She was actually, when I read like the full article, she was actually like very measured about it. She acknowledged the guy has got some mental health problems. You know, she understood. But it's just that the system, the the way in which it's dealt with is just not good enough. Meanwhile, over at UKIP HQ, where there are pints of milk that have been in situ for longer than most of their leaders... <laughs> Henry Bolton, the latest person to wear the chief twat badge, is refusing to quit after a vote of no confidence and after the resignation of some of his front bench. Bolton had earlier been forced to, and I quote, end the romantic part of his relationship with burgeoning celebrity racist and crazy character being played by Tilda Swinton alike, Joe Marnie, after she made comments about Prince Harry's fiancée Meghan Markle. And let's face it, It's not the comments that caused the split so much as the fact that people found out about them. And let's not even ponder too hard about what the romantic part of his relationship means. I feel a bit bilious. I know. Still fucking. Meanwhile, persistent fuckstain Nigel Farage (laughs) was reported to be thinking of starting his own pro-Brexit party, which is literally the last thing this country needs after Brexit itself. Still, it'll give the Beeb an excuse to book him for another 30 question times. I like that they've got a bench. Yeah, I was going to yeah. comment on that. How do you get a front bench if you, like, don't have any MPs? You I can... think it is literally a bench. Yeah, you can buy it <laughs> from a garden centre, just get a plaque, uh, like, dedicated to Nobby, died eating a sausage roll, the British way. I love that Farage is starting a new party. I wonder if it will go as well as Robert Kilroy Silk's efforts. Yeah. What was that called? There was Veritas. Veritas. I went to a Halloween party once and you had to come as the thing that scares you most. And my mate, a very pretty girl called Tamsin, went as Robert Kilroy Silk. <laughs> it was really unnerving. Have you ever seen the Robert Kilroy Silk loops video on YouTube? you got to watch it. It is fucking incredible. He, like, it's the opening bit of, like, every um, Kilroy programme, basically, and he walks on and he says something, like, 
increasingly bonkers. Like, you're 40, you're all alone, and you want to die? <laughs> and like, you go out, you find someone to have sex with, you get home, and they're a man? It is brilliant. Yeah. Kilroy Loops. Kilroy Loops. Google it, guys. Google it. Anyway, uh, on a, enough of annoying yeah, men, Jen. On a slightly different subject, let's talk about hateful women instead, shall we? Awesome. Bridget Bardot weighed in on the hashtag MeToo debate this week in an interview with French magazine Paris Match. Bardot was asked what she thought about women who'd spoken out about the endemic sexism in the industry. The 83-year-old said, In the vast majority of cases, they are being hypocritical, ridiculous, uninteresting. Which is funny, because I'm getting a bit bored of having my ass patted by strangers, actually. They really should be in the studio. Yeah. <laughs> there are many actresses who flirt with producers in order to get a role. Then, in order to be talked about, they will say they've been harassed, she said. I found it charming when I was told that I was beautiful or had a nice little backside. This kind of compliment is nice, she says. Bridget Bardo hasn't made a film since 1973, which is... The year I was born. So she hasn't made a film in the time that I've been alive. So I failed to see why she thinks she's any kind of expert on how the industry currently works. Is that because no one told her she had a nice little backside after the age of whatever she, she became was became a recluse, then. didn't she? She, she ran lots like, of animal, animal sanctuaries. sanctuaries, yeah. Really? I can just yeah. imagine her just going, oh, little pig, you have a very nice backside. <laughs> oh, you have a lovely backside. Little backside, you like it when I say this to you, don't you? <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry for the accent, everyone. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Jen. A recent study has revealed that women are skipping smear tests over fears their vaginas just aren't up to scratch. A third of those surveyed by the charity Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust said that worries about the appearance and smell of their bits puts them off getting a pap test. And a third of women aged 25 to 35 said they wouldn't go if they were behind on their lady garden maintenance. They're far from pleasant, granted, but smear tests prevent 75% of cervical cancers. And the doctors and nurses carrying them out don't give a monkeys if you watch you downstairs, nor do they expect you to smell of spring meadows and candy floss. It's more like a lovely pie. Birds, don't be scared of your lady parts. Seriously, book in and get checked out. Hmm. <laughs> they are horrible though aren't they smear tests speculums I mean some would say you are designed to for your because kids come out of them obviously but it does feel like that is a one way valve and I'm not explaining this very well I might stop <laughs> it's just not nice is it Do you remember no I believe what, what it is it's a two way throbbing pipeline <laughs> <laughs> quite literally Anyway, Johnny Walker, the whiskey firm, not the DJ, has refused to comment on reports it's planning to launch a special lady label whiskey called Jane Walker. Lovely stuff. Which might go a tiny way to explaining why everyone's not up in arms at the very suggestion. Because something needs to explain it. Back in November 2016, Adweek reported that plans to launch Jane Walker were scrapped after Hillary Clinton failed to become the first female president of America which seems like the only positive thing to come from the Trump victory. But oh no, somebody clearly brought it up again at the meeting of the Future Branding Ideas and Woeful Sexism Committee, Mm. possibly because science has proved that our fragile lady constitutions are not capable of processing a man's whiskey. Yeah, that noise you can hear in the background, that's my liver laughing. I'm not sure if this whiskey is going to be pink or have glitter floating in it or come with a free pack of tampons, <laughs> but to be clear, I will never drink it or any other nonsense that might be on the horizon 
Kim Beam, Mammy Van Winkle, <laughs> Glenn Vajanji. <laughs> Still, if Lady Whiskey is the future, Bushmills can at least rest easy. And finally, a tip of the hat to Will I Am for calling out sexism in the music industry. Music does a really good job of diminishing the power of a woman, said the Black Eyed Pea. Especially hip-hop, rock, sex, drugs and rock and roll. A woman is a resource in that sentence. It's sad. Speaking at the Sundance Film Festival, I Am, is is that his surname? I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. all right. Thanked his ma for playing him the Isley Brothers' gentle admiration of women, that lady, with its famous refrain of who's that lady. If that song had come out today, it'd be like, who that bitch, he joked. Rumours this has made Paul McCartney rethink his release of Bitch Ho Madonna are so far unconfirmed. More news next week. Indeed. Yeah. Bitches. (laughs) (laughs) I quite like bitches as an expression name, but I'm allowed to say it because I'm a bitch. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we accept there's a massive societal problem that desperately needs addressing, then make a big old loads of bants about it anyway. So, ladies, uh... Got a little game for us to play this week. I like Ooh. games. I'm not sure I was supposed to call you ladies. Oh, I'm going to score badly, aren't I? Anyway, it's time for us to ask, are you a feminist or an outrageous cunt? Bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. Are they mutually exclusive? <laughs> I don't know. So. Let's ask the evening standard. So there's an article this week, a serious article, about the uh, backlash to the hashtag MeToo movement. And then next to it, there is a quiz. Just how bad a feminist are you? I love that it's already, you're going to be a bad one, but just how bad? How bad? How How bad? bad. It doesn't specify if it means bad like not really a feminist or bad like... Michael Jackson. Actually a feminist. (laughs) Yeah, like an actual (laughs) feminist. Bastards. Uh, So should we start? Yes, please. Okay, the first question is, your date buys you a gin and tonic. You prefer ale. I don't go go on dates. Hannah's folded at the first hurdle. All right, mate. Well, just let's say for hypothetical reasons... Hannah Dunleavy does go on dates. Okay. You've been offered a gin and tonic, but you prefer ale, which I also know not to be true, but like, let's just it's suspend disbelief. Yeah, yeah. No, I'll have a Jane Walker, please. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, A, hot-foot it out of there as quickly as you can and get to work telling everyone you know this was a sign that he wanted control over you, this man is a threat, you should have thrown it down his shirt? Do you, B, politely thank him adding that you're paying for the next round and yours is usually a beer or do you see down it you fancy him and need dutch courage to take the next step what i would say (laughs) can can i add can i add d what i would do in this situation is drink it and then say actually i drink whiskey and then send him back to the bar for one of those yeah the, the option for what i would actually do isn't there what would you do I'd, I'd drink it and then just be like, but I would usually have a beer. Well, that would be like, well, that's B then. Is it? Politely thank him and say you'll pay no, for the No, I'm not going to be polite. Him. I'm not going to be thanking him. I'm going to be like, oh, you bought I'm me gonna a drink I'm going to say, why the fuck didn't you ask yeah, me, you what, ask me what, what drink I was, yeah, yeah. was going to drink in the first place? There's no interim. They're very extreme answers. That's because you're a lady and you don't drink beer. Okay. Anyway, next up, a male colleague. Again, we're all going to have to suspend disbelief here because we work with birds. I've met men before. Okay. A male colleague emails to say he likes your skirt. Do you? I don't own any skirts. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he likes my skin. I don't know why. <laughs> I like right. your skin. Oh, I'd like to probably, wear it as a skirt. I think that's worse, isn't it? I like your skin. <laughs> I know. I thought it was going to be really creepy. <laughs> <laughs> How would you? I like your skin. <laughs> Just on messenger. I <laughs> don't like you. 
Um, right, DUA, forward his message to HR and tweet your experience and publicly call him out. That sexist dinosaur doesn't deserve to be in his job with an attitude like that. You wait for the hashtag I'm with her solidarity messages to flood in and feel a rush of validation when your message is favoured by the Women's Equality Party. I don't think I'm going to get to the end of this quiz without, without running against a brick wall. Do you B, ignore him, you're far too busy being a top power exec anyway, or do you C, reply thanking him and telling him it's from the Arquette, never heard of that, sale. Um, I had a male boss once who used to, if I didn't wear my glasses to work, he'd be like, are you out on the pool tonight? Usually the answer was actually yes, but, uh, it, you know. Yeah. Okay, just to take this ridiculous quiz seriously for yeah. one cotton-picking moment, it's silly, isn't it? Because it's all about context, and yeah. our little lady brain can cope with context. So you know if someone's saying, nice skirt in a creepy way, that implies they want more than to compliment you on what Can you're I wearing. Can I stick my cock up here? Yeah. <laughs> or if they're just going, that's a nice skirt, where'd you get that from? Yeah. I'll tell you what fucks me off about this quiz, apart from like everything, everything about it, is that it's next to a serious article about a serious thing. Because it is a serious thing. Like, okay, we're going to talk about this a bit more at a different time but oh right no but I don't want you to get distracted from the quiz because I'm really keen to know how I scored Jen oh really I want to know how bad well, what I am did you, what did you say you no said... none of the answers again I okay. know what mostly A's know? mostly B's right. and mostly C's means mostly A's means congrats you're a good feminist don't let it go to your head lady mostly B's means you are a master of nuance this has got you into trouble on Twitter this makes you a bad feminist Hans Can I say, does, does mostly C say the editorial board of the uh, Evening Standard? <laughs> <laughs> Nearly. You're about as feminist as Donald Trump. Uh, but no uh, one respects women more than Donald J. Trump. No. Uh, well, George Osborne obviously does. It seems slightly sarcastic, those words. Congratulations, you're a good feminist. And also, uh, well done, lady. Don't let it go to your yeah. head. I mean, Don't let it go to your pretty little head, ladies. What fucks me off is like, this is a serious thing. Like the hashtag Me Too movement is a serious thing. The whole point of this quiz is to diminish it and say... Yeah. It, like it's gone too far now is that yeah. do you know what's gone too far what's gone too far is that one in five women between the ages of i think 16 and 64 in this country and this is just reported are victims of violent sexual crime right that's gone too far if you ask me yeah. just fuck you george osborne fuck you yeah and the piece of shit you edit I, I agree because what they failed to notice there is in the very first question you know it's not about, oh, I want to pay half my way on a date or I want him to pay for all of my stuff on a date. I love that she puts on a date in inverted commas as if they don't really exist. Yeah, they're not real. What? Every time the she question says that's when dating is, dies. not ask someone's opinion in a quiz, is to ask their opinion before you go to the fucking bar and Absolutely. make a judgment call on what they're likely to It's not a think. tricky question, is it? What can I get you? Well, yeah. Although my tip would be, ladies... When you go on a date, always buy the first round because then you can just fuck off and you don't owe anyone anything. We are joined by Karina Johnson, the Artistic Director and CEO of Hoxton Hall, who's coming to talk to us today about female parts, which is not... Well, I'm going to have to put that in some context, otherwise it's going to sound... I'm going to let Karina tell us. Karina, tell us about female parts. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. Um, well, I named it Female Parts, so it's my fault, the uh, double <laughs> entendre. Totally intentional, of course, but also parts for women. So parts in the theatre, parts on the stage, you know, being present and counted. It's Excellent. a mixed bag, isn't it, it is. at the festival? Can you talk us 
to it. it. Um, so it starts on the 23rd of January. That's our first event. And that's a new musical called Oranges and Elephants, which is about Victorian girl gangs. I'm so um, excited about this. Is yeah, it it's about based two on two pickpockets, right? No, it's about a whole oh. lot more women than that. More, more than two. <laughs> more, more than, than two, two women on the stage. More than two the women on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's actually inspired by some real girl gangs. So there was a really notorious gang called the Forty Elephants, who were Elephant and Castle, not surprisingly, <laughs> um, which carried on for quite some time until the 1920s. And then the others are kind of imagined mashup of a number of East London girl gangs. So they were big gangs. They weren't kind of one or two. We haven't got 40 on our stage. It's a bit small for that. We've got 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And so what kind of nefarious doings did they get done? <laughs> well, yeah, they did pickpocket, but they, they had very different styles. So one were kind of a bit more violent, knife-wielding, hard girls. Um, and the others had their roots on the stage, so they they did kind of more con tricks in order to get money. It was still pickpocketing, but depended on your style. Did you write it? No. Um, a really fantastic local writer called Lil Warren made it and and wrote the book and the uh, music as well. So she's pretty talented. It's all the same issues that affect young women and their around gangs now so it's really resonant it although it's historical actually you kind of go that could be 2018 because it's all the same reasons why girls might enter a gang or be part of or that or on the fringes of it really and i was reading on your website we were talking about this a little bit before that mm-hmm. you do quite a lot of work in the local area in east london with youngsters we do what kind of work are you doing with them so we have a program which is it's six days a week it's free we work with seven to 19 year olds so across drama music uh visual arts dance dance is very popular and they can come and access those after school then we have holiday projects so it's it's a really busy full-on program you can see that happening with young people there's such so much kind of more acceptance really so yeah so we've got uh, oranges and elephants on for three weeks and then we have a number of kind of one night events so we've got an event called jazz vs jukebox which is jamoke fashola um who hosts it and she's an amazing singer um so it's a live jazz band and poets and there's kind of improvisation between them there's also a little open mic thing so we have an all-female lineup for that um and then we have a swing event which is always good fun which is run by women DJs which is quite good fun we have some talk events so we have a tonic celebrate so tonic is an organization that works for gender equality in the theater so they've been doing that work for some time so we've collaborated to do an event which is to allow people in the industry to access women who are doing various jobs to just find out how they did it because it's quite hard to navigate your way through the arts really you kind of go ah the people are there but I have no idea that how they got from here to there. I have a question. Yeah. Regarding gender equality in the theatre, mm. how's that going? Yeah, that's that's quite a big job. <laughs> We've still got a lot of work to do, you know, hence the reason for, for a season like this. I think it's about celebrating, but it's also about putting that kind of spotlight on the work that needs to be done. It, it's, it's clearly, you know, the arts has got a worse record on gender equality than some some, you know some other services like the military and the wow. police so wow. it's about what happens with the arts is there's lots and lots of kind of you know if you go to a drama school it's nearly always hugely female dominated and marketing is, is exactly it's just, uh, the further up you go there's less and less women there's less and less women that are in it yeah. 
um, in terms of backstage stuff. So, you know, my job, it's very, there are not many women doing, yeah. they're I not as many, it's not 50-50. And that's basically what, what we want to work towards. And particularly, I think when you performers-wise, as women get older, just seem to disappear. Yeah. No so one's writing the parts for them. Yeah, there's a or kind of... Bennett. <laughs> but there's a kind of weird no-man's land with, with um, actors or no-woman's no land. Yeah, so, I mean, I've been casting for some plays that are at the end of female parts, which is um, some shorts, three solo pieces for women in their 40s. And it's been really interesting because we wanted to, to mix it up in terms of race. So... Actually, we had lots and lots of women to audition in certain areas because they're just not the parts of them. So there's lots of very experienced people who would go, oh, yeah, I'll do that. And then in certain race, we, we definitely had less people because people just dip out of the profession. They just go, I've, got, I've had enough. Because there's a point, you know, you're getting loads of parts when you're younger. Then there's this weird bit that happens in the middle. And if you can hang in there, mm. then you start getting parts yeah. again at the end. But it's that bit in the middle that quite often people just go, got to quit can i ask about about sort of cl class equality within mm. the arts <laughs> that's what i'll say about that class equality oh, that's even worse yeah it's even worse and it's you know that's that's why the work that we're doing at, at levels with young people is really important because obviously we're talking about young people from hackney and you know no matter what the kind of pr says about hoxton it doesn't actually look like that it looks like lots more working class people living in lots and lots of estates around the area and those people are not accessing the trendy Hoxton they're not accessing the accessing the culture and and that is about class and yeah. you're getting those kids in you're not just getting like Hermione from Stoke Newington like. I don't think we've ever had a Hermione <laughs> we've never had a Hermione no we definitely are getting local young people yeah. in it can I just ask female parts mm. again going, going yeah. back to the old female parts how did it come about? You, It's an entire season, basically, yeah. isn't it, of all-female roles? Performers, like, yeah. yeah. So, um, basically, I have been thinking about this for about, about two years, probably, in the end. So, when I arrived at Hudson Hall, I thought it was amazing that it had been run by women for the last 40 years, which is so unusual, mm. I can't tell you. Although the role wasn't called an artistic director, basically the leadership of the organisation had been female for years and years and years. And I wanted to have an opportunity to celebrate that. And obviously, what better way to do it than through art? Because that's what we do. And also because it was so varied. And the plays that I'm directing at the end, A Woman Alone by Frankie Rama and Dario Foe, was a play that I read years ago and I kind of always had a bit of a love affair with. So I thought, well, I've got at least one play <laughs> that I know I want to do. And then Lil came... She was doing another project. She started talking about her project. And I was like, great, OK, I've got a little bit of an anchor. Let's let's see if we can get this cooking. And because it's a cross art form space, it means that we can involve women. You know, I was having conversations about women in music and they're having lots of the same issues. I know we always think of all oh, lots of girl singers, but that's sort of that's the problem. Lots of girl singers what about everybody else yeah, what absolutely. about behind the scenes yeah. what about you know all of that so then and the same with comedy so when I started talking to promoters and partners in different art forms then actually everybody's having similar issues and not knowing how to start addressing it and personally if something bothers me I just try and do it I kind of don't wait for a campaign because I think you can sit down and wait for somebody somewhere to do something you just have to start in whatever way you can so 
And it's also just kind of proving that women do sell. Because there's a little bit of a mythology mm. that, you know, all women, all women for three months. Oh, I don't know about that ticket wise. But actually, you know, we buy the most tickets. So why wouldn't we pay tickets yeah, to come and see ourselves? There's no market for middle aged women or women in general or women doing amazing things. Who the well, fuck wants to see that? <laughs> maybe other women, women. do shit. It's the same thing though, isn't it? It's like a really consistent theme in all of the stuff we always talk about. So it's the same in sport. Exactly. No one wants to invest in women's sport because yeah. women are not gonna go and watch it. Well, you know, if you put them there, maybe they will or yeah. like, you know, or it, it yeah. always comes with this pointless backlash as well. Every time we put a tweet out saying, because we have all women shows, yeah. and every time we put a tweet out, people, someone, guaranteed, will always come back to us and what say, about men? If, this, <laughs> if this was men, there'd be freaking outrage. And you're like, this is men all the freaking yeah. time. You can't believe how many events go on that there are no women at. Yeah. But the yeah. minute you put on an all-women one, men get really angry with you. Yeah. But that's the thing. I think people don't oh. notice that women aren't present. And that's why, that's why we're talking about this, because all of a sudden it is noticeable because there are no men present actually in a weird way so you know there shouldn't be a need for this but there is because you can have whole seasons where not a single female right has been on in the theatre for a year or and nobody will notice that we weren't there yeah and I think voices are getting louder because for years and years we've not released or decades we've not said anything because women from being young girls are brought up to be accommodating mm. to be quiet to sort of put up and shut up mm-hmm. and now we're just like if that was coming from a man I would immediately be quiet <laughs> can you do it in a slightly deeper voice no, <laughs> no more no more mm-hmm. quiet yeah just shout about it absolutely but I think also it's about where the conversation is for younger women. So one of the events we're doing is a kind of debate for women from 16 to 25, 26. Because I'm always disturbed at the conversations I have with young women about, you know, if I mention the F word, which they're never good with, the feminism word, you go, they go, oh, it's very dividing and people kind of don't feel like they can embrace it or they don't know what it means or, you know, I have some bizarre conversations and I just think somehow the conversation about that hasn't been uh, hasn't landed with this generation and so it's important it's a lot of a lot of young people young women are not embracing that and I think that that's a PR thing that we haven't you know feminism as a kind of movement left a lot of working class women women of color completely behind so all of those young women are going so it's got nothing to do with me it was that thing that happened years ago other decades and so it's important to mm. have those conversations that are in a way that are accessible and that they can feel that they want to embrace it really I always think with young people it's I always think it's getting worse because the people that you see like in the public eye or whatever I just think like the people in a lot of ways we think oh it's all you know progressing nicely like the world's changing whatever but I think a lot of the time actually the people that they're looking to in the media, in the spotlight, and I just think, fucking hell, if that's what you think like this is about, like we're we're screwed. Yeah, I think it's just about giving alternatives and giving space to people to yeah. talk and think about how women might be different. And you know, that's what the whole season's about. That's what the plays at the end are about. Those different roles that women can be, the different roles that women can be, the different roles that women choose to be, and just countering the expectations. Um, constantly so those those plays are you know about roles of women in terms of motherhood and 
mostly they're all mothers but in terms of their career and the judgments that we have but the counter to that Mm. so it's not just about going oh that's terrible or you know there's not one version that women come in lots of different flavors and lots of different ways really I guess is is the idea and the same with the debate around gender that it doesn't have to be just one version of that debate Mm. that it there are ways to make it interesting and resonant for those young women so they feel empowered to do something rather than going it's nothing to do with me which is I think more worrying agreed thank you so much one for putting on female parts and two for coming in and talking to us about it Good we'll come and see, see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, come and see it. I'm here at the Many Air Chocolate Factory rehearsal rooms with Bryony Cummins, performance artist and one of the most fierce and ballsy birds I know. <laughs> Hi, Bryony. Hello. You're currently in the last week of rehearsals for The Pacifist Guide to the War on Cancer, which is a musical. Yeah, a kind of a musical. I mean, as musical as I get. Tell me a bit about it, please. So it kind of came from, I guess I always make work about real life, normally my life, mm-hmm. and then Complicity, the big sort of big swinging balls theatre company of British theatre, asked me to sort of pitch a show to them. And at the time, I wasn't really annoyed about anything. I was still in the midst of like being in like pop star mode. I'd been a pop star for a year for a project. Singing and, um, about dinosaurs. Singing about dinosaurs, yeah, feminist pop star for kids. And so uh, the woman who was sort of interviewing me had cancer, and I was just like, oh, do you want to make something about that? Like, I could come to your treatments with you. Like, I was really quite floundery. And she was like, yeah, okay. And I was like, I've always really wanted to write a musical, a musical's you know they do offer big cod swipes at big subjects like you know AIDS and race and I was like cancer can be a musical should be a musical really so then I started writing a musical about that and I felt like the thing that really annoyed me and the couple of the people that I was writing with about cancer was this kind of like constant battle metaphor and the kind of like you will fight this you will survive or you will die and, and actually, what happens if you die you just not fight you're a loser yeah, yeah you're yeah. a loser so the, you know the metaphor surrounding Cancer are really, they're unique to cancer. You don't say those sorts of things to people that have diabetes, for example, or asthma. When I started to meet patients, I found that although it was sometimes helpful, sometimes it was a real rod for people's backs or like something that they didn't feel like they were living up to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to write a pacifist guide, like, you know, a feminist kind of guide that sort of looks at all the intersectionality of cancer and how you can do it however you want because that language of war is incredibly patriarchal oh my god exactly like it's like exactly like it comes from like surgeons and you know male oncologists basically and it also comes from the the land of the well so like in this in this musical like there's the kingdom of the sick and there's the land of the well and the people that want people to be positive and fight cancer like a battle those people that sort of use that language are not the people that have cancer so like it's much easier to say oh well it's okay you you, you can battle it and you'll survive um, than saying like I'm really sorry let's talk about death the language of cancer is patriarchal misogynistic but it's also very much for the benefit of people that don't have cancer right and I thought well let's write a show that that is from the total point of view of people that do have cancer so that they can tell people what they would like cancer to look like and feel like and people how people to treat them could treat them so yeah you did quite a lot of intensive research you went and visited various patients and I didn't give myself cancer though you You didn't well done I mean (laughs) I do smoke method acting (laughs) yeah I mean I I went to meet a lot of people yeah I did mostly women 
I was very interested in feminist cancer stories because the pink ribbony kind of breast cancer narrative really gets on my nerves. And yeah. Stuff. Like no, it's not that it's not good for some people, it's just that I think it's again like it's misogyny. So I met people with different types of cancer, like colon cancer or cancers that were kind of you know, the rare ones that no one talks about and don't get any money. Um yeah, so I, I do I do throw myself into these projects. Throw myself, not myself. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, and this show is sort of like the culmination of all of that research really sort of about what happens when you try to infiltrate the kingdom of the sick but you don't belong there so what's the storyline how is it plotted it's about writing this guide so it, it like outlines me going to complicity and being like yeah sure i'll make a show with you what about a show about cancer you know i've got any other ideas at the moment so let's begin and then it kind of we kind of meet all the characters that i'm that i met and then we meet lara veach who is sort of I call her super cancer girl. She's got leaf Raumani syndrome, which means that she is 100% definite to get cancer as a person because she right. has no tumour suppressors in her cells. So she can just... Whereas we have tumour suppressors, so unless there's a carcinogen in our body, we, we don't grow um, cancer tumours, but she just grows them like, like it's nobody's business. So she's had cancer six times. Crikey. And, so, and she's 27. So... When I met her, I was like, this is the oracle of all cancer. And she's also super feminist. She's had a mastectomy with no reconstruction. She's really political. She's just amazing. And she's like one of my best friends now. So I meet her and we kind of go on this journey to write this ultimate feminist, brilliant, you know, guide. And then in real life, my son was born and then got very, very ill. And she got her sixth and most serious cancer at the same time. So we're kind of in hospital at the same time whilst trying to write this show. So kind of the kingdom of the sick takes over and we get sucked into it. And then it becomes very real, like my son was diagnosed with a very rare form of epilepsy, which kind of, they said the treatment was as as rough as chemotherapy for him, whilst Lara's having chemotherapy and deciding whether or not she wants to have surgery or just have palliative care. So it went from like, this is a really fun musical project, to like, oh my God, our lives are imploding. And I think the story is basically that once you're in the kingdom of the sick there isn't a guide you know you can try all you you like to be political and savvy but actually you're hurtling through the the kingdom of the sick like some kind of lost asteroid and you and you know everyone does it differently and no one knows how to deal with it and that's kind of where it gets to at the end which is like all we can do is be in a room together and be like this is terrifying and support each other exactly and let each other do cancer or any illness however they bloody well want Yeah, I think cancer is definitely something... I I don't know of anyone who hasn't been touched by it at some point. Yeah, there's a bit at the end of the show where we get people, if they want to, to say and honour the names of people that they might have lost or who have survived cancer. And it's it's like a cacophony, you know, the whole room comes alive with all of these names and all of these shout-outs to people. And that's kind of the only thing that you can do is say, like, this is terrifying, I've lost this person, I don't know where it leaves us we're never going to be the same again you know and I think that's a better way to think about illness than to be like no you'll just be brave you'll survive it'll be fine you know no this is fucking awful I like the fact that you've got a big respect for cancer you wrote a piece for us when you started writing the musical Mm. way back in I think it was 2015-16 when Mm. you started looking into this and one of the words you use is awesome cancer is awesome and Mm. it's in the old testament meaning of the word Mm. Mm. 
I've, yeah, I mean, it's, if you think about it in a non-emotional way, in a scientific way, it's our body's best bit. It can't stop growing. It doesn't want to die. Like, it can, it's harder to kill it than any other cell, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, in a way, it is our, it's our bionic self. And it can survive in mice once it's been... Once we've died, you can transpose the cells into mice and it can, you can grow it forever. Henrietta Lacks so it's is... immortal. Yeah, it's immortal. It's immortal, exactly. There's a section in the show which is all like B-movies because when the blob and the thing and all that stuff came out in the 70s it was when they realised that cancer was immortal and all of those cultural references come from like the scary newspaper stories about like cancer is actually undeniably like stronger than us. We can't defeat it. And these films then came oh, out. Wow, it's so cool. It's like it's, it's honestly, it's a really, it's a brilliant subject. Like Brian, the guy I wrote it with, Brian LaBelle and Tom Parkinson. Tom didn't really know much about it like I didn't, but Brian knows everything and he told us all this amazing stuff and you're like, this is, it is awesome. Like, it's fucking awful. My nan died of cancer, you know. It's not like something I would wish on my worst enemy, but like, you've got to respect the fact that it's, it's really duping everybody and it's completely continuing to be the thing that kills us which just even more undermines the language of war that we yeah. haven't get I mean, there's not, a good like my favorite line in the show at the moment is like like i say to judith like how are you going to fight that then what are you going to do punch yourself in the tits <laughs> do you know what i mean because you yeah. can't like you're not how can you tell you can't tell your body to stop attacking itself so this thing of like come on you can fight this is like i don't know how like you're the oncologist is fighting it you're not apart from positive mental attitude perhaps or eating a good diet there's a documentary that goes alongside yeah. this guide as well is it called the little sea it's called the little sea yeah it's nice it's just about a bit about the background of the making of the show and stuff it's quite arty you know like it's quite um, you're quite arty mate i didn't make it i didn't make it oh is it it was simon um, who is one of complicite's kind of bods and he made it. I love it. It's nice. Yeah, it's like lots of people talking about cancer and talking about the metaphors surrounding it and stuff. You know, lots of people hoping that maybe with current dialogue around cancer that maybe it'd be nice to change those metaphors. Uh, they're very helpful to charities, you know, crying yeah. children on posters with yeah. tubes up their nose and um, battle metaphors are good to make money. But who do they serve? Yeah, I, I guess how else? It's kind of marketing for cancer. Is yeah. that the correct yeah. term? Yeah, ribbons. You know, yeah. it's all branded. Yeah, um, I like. I really liked the campaign by the Pancreatic Cancer Society, which was called "I Wish I Had Breast Cancer." And it was an image of a woman with all these tumours in her head, which is what happens when you get pancreatic cancer. It spreads very quickly and it's very brutal and it will definitely kill you. Yeah, it gives you these tumours in your head, and it's this woman, and it just says, "I wish I had breast cancer." Because it's like all the money goes to breast cancer because it's, you know, tits and pink and it's, it is one of the biggest cancers. You are wearing the sort of pink ribbon scarf at the moment. I know. You've got it on in the... I've got a bit cancer. <laughs> pink is breast cancer. Purple, I think, is leukaemia. Green, I don't know. I don't know. Lymphoma? It's 200 different types of cancer. 200? Mm, 208, I think. I think because it's, it's such an emotive subject mm. because, like I said, we all know someone who's been... Mm. We've all been touched by it in some way. We don't look into it because it's too scary. Yeah. Tom, the guy who wrote the music, had the brilliant book, The Emperor of All Maladies, which I would say, if you're scared of cancer, is the best book to ever read. It's like the history of cancer. It explains everything about it. And I read it and I was like, oh, my God, well, I'm not as scared as I was before. And he had that book for about five years before we made this show, and it was back to front in his, in his bookshelf. He said he couldn't have it in his bedroom with the, ca- the cancer the word cancer on it, you have right. to turn it around. And, and you're like, yeah, but once you look at it and once you start to think about it, one in two of us will get it. Most of us will now survive it. 
Like, it, you should know what it is. You should be checking for it. You know, like, all of those things. It's not as terrifying. You can't take the power of it away, but you can arm yourself with knowledge that makes the fear of the unknown go away, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I do. I had a really interesting, long conversation with a guy called Professor John Jong, which is, like, the best name ever. That is well good. And he's a professor at Oxford, and he studies death anxiety... And he, he would argue that all of the decisions that we make as adults and, and as children are all based on our death anxiety. So once we learn about death, you know that scene in Kill Bill where the fish dies? Yeah. <laughs> so once we've had that thing that Bibi has, which is like, that's a dead fish, that's, that's going to happen to me, every decision we make is about death. So even if you're choosing to have children or not, if you're choosing what to wear, like every decision comes from this idea of death anxiety, which I think is really interesting because you don't think of it consciously, but... You know, that is the one thing that we're all hurtling towards and all terrified of. So once we talk about death and we talk about cancer and we're talking about it, it allows us to release that fear that sits sort of somewhere in the darkest annals of our brain. And I kind of like that. There's things like called death cafes where people sit around and talk about mortality and death, not because they're dying, but because they think it will help ease all the stresses and depression we have in normal life. I had a momentary worry then that it was going to be like a cat cafe, you know, and they'd just be like dead <laughs> bodies. people. Yeah, just bodies everywhere. Mm, cadavers. Yeah. Uh, no, that's not what that is. Good. It's not what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this this show really goes there. And, and, I mean, my work, I hope, always really goes there. But, like, who wants to see a bloody musical about death and cancer? Everybody! Come! It'll be really fun. It is really fun. And... It's opening in Liverpool the 26th? I think so, yeah. Is it the Everyman Theatre? Everyman, then Newcastle Northern Stage, then Coventry, Belgrade, and then it goes to Australia. And then I hope it will come back to England and tour extensively for like three or four years. Yeah, that's the plan. Yeah, I mean, I need the money, so please please (laughs) book the show. Yeah. And where can people go to find out more about you? Me, brianakimmings.com, mate. B-R-Y-O-N-Y-K-O-M-M-I-N-G-S. We have to spell that before. Yes, many times. Oh, people always think I'm called Brownie Killings. Brownie Killings? <laughs> Which is my Are murder mystery not name. responsible for all those Brown- dead girl guides. Oh, no, the Brownie, Brownie killings. killings. The Brownie Killings. Shit. I've sworn twice. Which well, is swear good, it's good because I normally swear a lot more. Oh, have you toned it down for us? I've started weightlifting, right, for another project, bodybuilding actually, although you can't tell yet, but I will be really buff in like a year's time. And I swore so much in my first session and I could hear myself and I suddenly was like, I've got a little boy and it's just me and him most of the time. So I was like, I need to stop swearing. So I've just, I've just, I've gone detox. You're detoxing on swearing? Yeah, I say fudge now. Mother fudger. Mother fudger. Fudging heck. Anything else you want to know? No, anything um, else you want to tell us? If you saw it at the National Theatre or Home Manchester or um, Exeter, it's slightly different because it was a big full-on musical when it was first made, like 18 people, a big five-piece band, and fiction, much more fictionalised stories. But that was because both Lara and I were in the middle of having a massive trauma. So there was a voiceover of me talking a bit about my son getting ill, but mostly it was fiction. So if you'd seen it and you think, I've seen that show, you haven't. We've rewritten it because we felt like... Well, Complicity said, you know, now that that trauma's all over, would you like to have another bash? Because you're in it. Yeah, you wasn't in it before. Just a voice in it yeah. the first time around, but now So you if you are... want to see me again on stage with my tits out... My tits don't come out, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you so that's much all right. for talking my to God, us. everybody that's listening, please come. We'd love to see you. I think it, I think it will be good. I know it'll be good. Come on, let's have a bit more confidence. All right, it's going to be good. It's going to be the best thing you've ever seen in your whole life. And on that bombshell. <laughs> 
Hi, we're here in the studio having a nice cup of tea with author Alison Vale to talk about her new book, A Woman Lived Here. Hello, Hello. Alison. Hello. Thanks for joining us. There are currently, according to your book, fun fact I learned today, 903 Londoners that have a blue plaque. Anybody want to guess? Alison, you're not allowed to take part in this because you know the answer. How many of those people are women? Well, there's 900. 903. Three. 50. Oh, it's actually... Well, you're going to be pleased with this. (laughs) The correct answer, as Alison will tell us, is 111. 13%. Oh, 13%. Oh my God, that's outrageous. What are all these women doing out of the kitchen yeah. to get a blue plaque? Disgusting. Now, what are the causes for that disparity there? That's a really big question, isn't it? And I think part of the problem is the, is the business of recording history. You know, Churchill famously said, didn't he, that he knows he's going to be, the, the history will be kind to him because he's going to write the history books. I've paraphrased. A lot of the process of recording history was done by men. It was blokes writing it about the the, the event, the the history that blokes had made. It was all down to a very male-centred process. History, not her story. Exactly. And I think that's been a major, major impact. It does mean English Heritage undertook some survey a few years back, which kind of prompted this whole thing where they put their hands up and said, look, we know this this is really not on. And they asked people whether they thought that history had been made as as impactfully by women as it had by men Um, and the results were really miserable that people overwhelmingly thought that men had been enabled to make history and the thing is men had been written about the end of this book had kind of got to the point where I thought you know what the business of balancing out the power between women is not so much one big 1918, you know, here you will have the vote, yay, big revolution. It's been a long, ongoing, quiet revolution that's kind of gone on for, for centuries, really. Lots of small, tiny triumphs that have just built up. And small and tiny doesn't make history. No. There's, there's that game you can play where you have 60 seconds and you say name as many men from history as you can and 60 seconds name as many women from history as you can and even like I would I would know I would be able to name but many more men what you will get with name as many women as you can is you will largely end up with the name of queens yeah. in history and that's an interesting point you make here in your introduction as well is that because the English heritage scheme for blue plaques the house has to exist yeah it means that working class women um those houses often you know, destroyed yeah. in the Blitz or in slum clearances mm. are and, left I mean, out. Absolutely. It's, you know, English heritage are there primarily to protect the buildings uh, of, of past generations and preserve them for the future. So obviously this scheme is partly driven by the buildings themselves and that does disadvantage working class men and women, actually. There's a whole imbalance there in, in amongst that. And so I've tried in the book to kind of break the rules a little bit because... There are they're more difficult to find quite often the stories of remarkable women of, of the working classes, but they they did exist and they did make enormous difference and enormous impact. So I've tried to do that, even though chances are they'll never get a blue plaque because the houses are no longer existing. So I have a question to start off with, which is how how does someone kind of qualify to get a blue plaque? You have to be nominated by the public. Can I have one? 
you could be nominated and okay. an English Heritage panel would then decide. But I have to be dead, right? You have to have been dead at least 20 years. Well dead, okay. Yeah. Your house has to be, you, your address has to be, you know, still somewhere where from a public highway people could go and see the house. And it has to still look pretty much as it would have done to its famous or significant occupant. Really? Yeah. So that's why if you're looking at somebody of particularly noteworthy somebody from the 18th century that house has to be pretty much still looking like it would have done to them so it's the remit of this you know there's there are all sorts of reasons why women aren't represented and 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 why in terms of class representation there's an imbalance too but you only had to have lived there you didn't have to have owned it no and you had to have lived there either for a significant period of your life or something significant about you had to have happened while you were at that house. All right, so say um, 13 Franks Road, the childhood home of one Jennifer Offord, uh, in, you know, hopefully many, many years from now. If some prick puts, like, a roof Uh, extension on it, does that mean, nah, soz, not happening? uh, No, if you put that... If somebody's put some lovely kind of pebble dashing and extended the, I don't know, the attic and put the side extension, then possibly... This is a plea... In your book, you've done something to kind of address the balance, as in this is a lot of stories about a lot of women who were in London, not always from London and not always ended up in London, but lived in London for a significant period of their life. Yeah. How many women are we talking about here? 56. How did you find them and narrow it down? I I did put out a lot of pleas to a lot of people that I knew were sort of um, from different fields, contacts, friends and family from different fields to say, you know, who are your heroes, who are your heroines in in your particular work. But a lot of it is just an awful lot of um, subscriptions to newspapers and archives and just searching and searching and searching. But I am a little bit of a magpie like this. So some of the women in the book, I'd sat on those stories, some of those for, for a long time, in the process of reaching, researching other projects, come across some of these stories and thought, I really want to do a book. And in fact, I'd pitched over the course of about eight years I suppose I'd pitched to different publishers several sort of different incarnations of this book um, and was told repeatedly by I have to say not by Little Brown who's publishing this one by other leading publishers have been told books on women's history never sell who wants to read about women? Who oh, exactly? Well, the women, That's, you pricks. Was absolutely that was their answer. Yeah. So some of them I'd sat on. Some of them I thought, oh God, somebody's got to tell that story. There's a couple of women in here that I I picked out. I mean, there's a couple of women in here. I'm surprised they don't already have a blue plaque. Yeah. Joan Littlewood, for example. Yeah. Uh, the theatre. Oh. Um, yeah. yeah. Impresario, who I was impressed to see once decided yeah. to walk from London to Liverpool and made it as far as. Burton upon Trent, was yeah. it? Yeah, which is That's still pretty yeah. far up the country. Yeah, before someone kindly bought her a bus ticket or a train ticket to, to Manchester. She decided that was good enough. Yeah. <laughs> she was actually on her way to the States. Really? Yeah, she was going to Liverpool to get on a, tra- a boat to the States. Probably she didn't try and swim it. <laughs> Joan Clark. Joan Clark. Now, oh. I found her very interesting. Joan Clark uh, was involved in the Enigma, Enigma at Bletchley, uh, yeah. Bletchley Park. Yeah. And what I found. Mick and I were talking about this when I read it. Um, what I found really interesting about is uh, my mother, her very first job was that she worked at the Foreign Office. Right. And her boss at the Foreign Office, she said everyone always told her that she did a job in the war that was really important, but she wasn't allowed to talk about it. And my mum assumed she was a spy because she spoke lots of different languages, right. this woman. Many years later, I take my nephew to Bletchley Park. Um, my mum said 
can you have a look? If you can go through the records of who worked there, can you have a look and see if you can find my old boss? Because I think now, that's with hindsight, that's what she was doing. And she was. And she she was, was in Hut 8. So brilliant. And she'd been working there. She was in Hut 8. She was in Hut oh. 8. But the difficulty is, or what I find interesting about this is, this is a period of these women's lives that they weren't allowed to talk no. about. No. She was awarded an OBE, if I am if I recall correctly, um, but wasn't allowed to tell anybody why. It's insane, <laughs> isn't it? Just like my skirt. Particularly for women yeah. who... You know, to prove yourself in the workplace. Yes. I mean, and you can't even put that on the no, on your CV no. that what you've been doing. And I think in the case of Joan Clark, she stayed in the world of cryptography her whole career, so she remained at GCHQ after um, after the war. So that was her field. So I guess then even more reason for her not to be letting on that that's yeah what she did for a living. Um, and of course, she did all of that alongside. I mean, Turing. Um, was very open about the fact that Clark was the the most able at using the the piece of kit that he devised to the most it was all mind-bogglingly difficult but but apparently German naval enigma was the most difficult of all the different variations of and and that's what Joan Clark was working on in Hut 8 and um Turing devised a piece of kit and I think it was pronounced the Banbarismus and she was by far and away the most able cryptographer using the Banbarismus to, to, to decode Naval Enigma. Um, and she couldn't be classified. Her job could, she wasn't enabled to be paid the same as the men because at Bletchley Park, if you were a woman, you were either a secretary or a translator. Yeah. And that, that was it. And so her pay code just you know, the fact that she was not only doing the same job but doing it better than the vast majority of her male colleagues, yeah, arguably, um, she couldn't. Well, luckily, that's not relevant to. Do- oh, sorry. yeah. <laughs> what other women's stories in here do you really want to talk about? I have a bunch of favourites, really, and I, I was trying earlier on on the train up here to kind of think about um, connections between different women, and and and, and actually, there's a but the the women I love most um, are my favourites simply because. They are one woman phenomena, all of them. One of them, absolutely heartbreaking story, which was Dorothy Lawrence, um, who was, um, she had a terrible, terrible childhood anyway, orphaned at a young age, taken on as as a sort of a ward. Oh, 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 I thought you were going to say as a war reporter because that was was my favourite one in this. She wanted to become a war correspondent during the First World War. She was laughed at all along Fleet Street. Her childhood had been awful, so she'd been orphaned. She'd been taken on by um, a a ward that was very high up in the Church of England and was brought up in Salisbury, left at the age of 15, and it wasn't until quite late on in the research that I came across um, a report about her many years later going to seek uh, medical intervention for various problems. And during that conversation, she finally admits that she'd been raped by somebody very senior in the Church of England as a 13-year-old child for two years. So she leaves at the age of 15. She leaves Salisbury. She comes back to London and she makes it as a journalist, as a 15-year-old, without a soul in the world that knows her. Um, And then war breaks out. And so she went along Fleet Street and she said, I want to go to the front. I want to report on this. And eventually the Times, they arranged for her to get a passport 
to get the ferry over to France. But there was no real belief in, in this as being an idea. So she tries and tries. She gets to Paris. Everybody she speaks to, she tries for successive weeks. I think it was something six to eight weeks. She tries to get to the front. And everybody she talks to within the army thinks they, they just can't process. This is what's so hard with that, you know, looking back through time. Nobody can process the fact that actually she's a journalist. She wants to just report. They're all thinking, well, if you're wanting to go to the front and be amongst men, troops, you must be a prostitute. That's the only possible... Or a spy. That's the only way that... that so she gets there. She realises that the only way she's going to be taken seriously or allowed to get anywhere near is to shave her hair, lose the corset, lose the bloomers. She 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 makes friends with two um, troops, British troops, who slowly but surely, one, one piece of kit at a time, nick her a full uniform. Mm-hmm. Um, and she turns up at the front and she spends... Spends ten days disguised. Yeah, as a yeah, chap. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's with um, Royal oh, Artillery. I want to say she was a tunnelling. It was a tunnelling troop that were uh, digging tunnels beneath No Man's Ooh, Land. Like Birdsong. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And the two men that had taken her into their confidence, she realises after ten days she keeps fainting repeatedly over and over and she realizes she's going to have to turn herself in because if she doesn't and she's uncovered it's going to impact on the two men that 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 helped her get there and the, they don't know how to punish but they're pretty sure they've got to punish and so they send her to a convent and the nuns look after her and give her a guinea pig that's an odd detail in the story <laughs> i don't quite know why i'm sorry it's a great story but that is my favorite detail that is <laughs> So she persuades them to let her go back to London. She's met off the boat by Scotland Yard with her guinea guinea pig. She did. And they interrogate her some more. And then after however many hours in the cell at Scotland Yard, they still can't decide what crime she's committed. So they dump her on the embankment, but they dump her with a gag order so that she's not allowed to tell her story until the end of the war. And when the end of the war comes, 1919... By this point, she's destitute because she'd given everything to get to the to get to the front, and now she's not allowed to make money out of it by telling the story. 1919, she finally writes her novel. It's called Sapper Dorothy. She's ridiculed and torn to shreds in the British press. They absolutely they call her a freak. Is it still available? Can, can um, you, get I, a copy? you can see you can read it online. You can see a copy online. Sapper Dorothy. Sapper Dorothy. And she's torn to shreds. And of course, by then it's nineteen 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 twenty. By the time yeah. it comes out, and it people don't want to look back at the at the war and the trenches and the mud and the death. They want to roar. They want to party. So it has this little tiny flurry, and then nothing happens. And she goes on for ten more years, trying desperately to make it as a journalist and doing it. Um, and increasingly suffering from what we now know as PTSD. So she's got terrible psychiatric symptoms now, which, of course, nobody understood then in, in, in the soldiers that were coming back, but least of all in a woman. Yeah, and I think we know where it ends when women in yeah. those days yeah. with psychiatric Did she end up illnesses. going... Colney Hatch, 40 years. 40 years of her life in Colney Hatch Lunatic Fucking Asylum. Hell. Sorry. She tells the doctor about her symptoms. She tells the doctor about her the rape... Um, as a teenage girl and he takes one look at her and, and the thing is 
it was stacked against you anyway as a woman, but as a woman with no family, as a woman with no good, solid, respectable connections, as a woman with no university education, nobody to vouch for her, she had one friend in the world, and that was the woman whose house she was sent to live in in Salisbury for two years. And at Colney Hatch, the medical records, she names this woman and she lists her name and address as her only friend and she sends for her to to come visit her 39 years and the woman never went to see her and she died in a lunatic asylum and when I got to the end of that story it broke my heart because it's a pretty heartbreaking story but she did it she did it she got her story told she went to the war she reported on it nothing much happened at the time but my god it should now you know it's it's crying out for for somebody to take that and write it into a a script. Hasn't Sally Wainwright written that already? Yeah. Yeah. If any if anyone's looking for stories to read their kids at night time, this is the best bedtime book ever. I think And I I could just sit and listen, like, tell me more. I would also say that bearing in mind, I mean a lot of these women were Mm. potentially childless because like you say, of the situation that they were in. But a lot of these women but by virtue of the fact that they are just ordinary women, mm. this is why people should poke around in their own family history yes. because that's oh, where God, you yes. find really interesting women yeah. whose stories are untold. One of them actually is um, a descendant of a lady that comes into the post office in the village I live in in Somerset. Oh, really? And she said, oh, you need to look up Lady Evelyn uh, Cobalt or whatever her surname is. Yeah, and um, she became, late in life, she became a leading expert on King Zog and the mountain peoples of Albania. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> you never know who was lurking in your... Absolutely, in, 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 in your background. Yeah. Thank you so much that for was coming on, Alison. This is fascinating. fascinating. Thank you Pleasure. so much. So the book is called A Woman Lived Here, at Alternative Blue Plaques, and it is available from all places that sell books. Yes, it is, hopefully. If it's not, bang on their door and ask why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OK, just don't bring that back to us. <laughs> Question and not answering that. Hello, this is Sarah Millican, and you are listening to Sarah Millican's Question Time. I'm sorry it's so echoey here. Um, it sounds like I'm in a bathroom. <laughs> That's because I am, guys. I'm on tour, and I'm currently in quite a big bathroom in a hotel. The bath has run. I'm not in it yet. I promise. I'm not on the loo either, and I am fully clothed. I feel like I should zip my hoodie up so you can hear... No, let's just just trust me. Just trust me that I've got clothes on. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, also, if you hear dripping, that's uh, the tap from the bath. That's not my nose or anything like that. Um, thanks so much for your questions, guys. You're so good at questions. I really appreciate you sending them in all the time. Um, the question this week is from Sheila Clark on the Twitter. Thank you, Sheila. And the question is my favourite spelling of the word Sheila as well. I like. I I love that spelling with the G-H at the end. And the question is, what's the one habit you started as a child that you still do today? It's quite a few of them. um, But the one I'll tell you about is, um, I cry when I've lost something and it appears. (laughs) I don't think I'm magic, but I I don't know for sure. Um, When I was little, if I lost something, dropped something and it rolled under something, you know, like a, a... a pencil or a, more likely an, an eraser or rubbers as we used to call them I used to collect rubbers and key rings um if I lost something I would cry uh because I was sad because I'd lost it stand pretty standard and then it would appear and I 
gradually <laughs> link those two things. So then after a while, well, I could be a teenager, drop an earring, a condom, a bloke's penis, anything like that when I was a teenager, and it would roll under a chair and I'd cry and it would appear. And I still link those things to, to this day. I don't... Um, if it's a big thing, like a marriage, <laughs> I cry for other reasons. I don't expect it to reappear. And I'm really glad that it didn't reappear when I cried, to be fair. But that hadn't just rolled under a bed or something. Um, that had rolled well and truly out of my life and sort of further up the metro track. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the thing that I do. Is that a silly habit? I don't know, but I find it very effective. I think you should all give it a go. Um, thank you so, so much for your questions. Have a good week, everybody. Bye-bye. If you'd like me to answer one of your questions, then tweet us at Standard Issue UK using the hashtag SMQT. Thank you. Standard Issue for all women. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny Off The Blocks Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, the part of the week where we ponder the pros and cons of goal defence versus goalkeeper as we discuss all things women's sports. Guys, let's not fuck around. Goalkeeper is well boring. It's all about GD. England Netball were in the news this week as the governing body's chief executive, Joanna Adams, spoke out about concerns over funding. Adams told the BBC last week that those concerns keep her awake at night. Strong. A full-time athlete programme, i.e. the women on the team and professional, will only continue to 2019, at which point England will host a World Cup in the sport. That programme was launched in 2016. Having received significant funding from Sport England for the 2017-2021 to cycle, that funding was cut by a massive 34% in the next round, and the national team will see only £3 million of a budget of £16.9 million. Netball isn't funded by UK sport because it's not an Olympic sport and it's not an Olympic sport because it's not played in enough regions by a diverse enough demographic, a.k.a. it's mostly played by birds. I mean, this isn't even really the point, but I will say in the name of redressing the enormous imbalance in sport, surely that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world? I mean, most sports are mostly played by men. And let's face it, netball is going to be something more people would get involved in than synchronised swimming or rhythmic gymnastics. But whatever, why get bogged down in the details, I? Also, one word, golf. Make of that what you will. It sometimes feels a bit like we never learn any lessons from anything, like back before the 2012 Olympics when we invested heavily in sports like handball so we wouldn't look stupid by not having teams to field at home games, then instantly cut the funding and fucked over all of the new team members and frankly wasted a tonne of cash. There's almost no point doing it if you can't sustain it, if we're honest. Basically, by dint of being a predominantly women's sport, as it were, netball is fucked. It doesn't have a male side of the game to subsidise it. And Adam's made the very valid point. Being a female sport is our unique selling point. We've talked about the empowerment of women and what netball can do in that environment. And it's not just that. It's a booming business at grassroots level as well. Places like London are rife with paid-for netball leagues, much like men's five-a-side football leagues. A massive 1.4 million people in the UK are playing netball, so imagine how many might be watching it if we bothered to invest in it. 
It's a frequent whinge for me, but that's really because it's worth a whinge. Why don't we invest in team sports? These are sports that are cheap to play and attract a diverse group of participants. We need investment at elite level to bring the next generation through and inspire more kids to get the fuck off Candy Crush. I don't know what Candy Crush is, by the way. Stop sending me Facebook invitations to play. I'm a grown-up, yeah? Investment in grassroots sports is also important, but without anywhere to go, it's harder to inspire that younger generation. It's that point we're so often making on this podcast in relation to so many different areas. If you can see it, you can be it. Some more shitty news this week. The incredible US gymnast Simone Biles spoke out about Team USA sports doctor Larry Nassar, who was jailed for 60 years for possessing child abuse images and has admitted to assaulting young gymnasts. In a statement published on social media last week, Biles said that she was one of those victims. In the statement, she said she felt broken, but she wasn't afraid to tell her story anymore. There's not a lot to say about this, really. I mean, it's awful, but it's huge for someone of Biles' standing to speak out about it. All I can say, really, is massive well done to Biles for speaking up, and hopefully her story will inspire other young girls to do the same and ensure that horrific incidents such as this in sport and outside it become less and less common. That's all for me this week. If you've got anything you want to talk about in the world of women's sports, you can give me a shout on Twitter at InspiraGen. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Disney. Dunleavy, what Disney did you did this week? This week I watched Basil, The Great Mouse Detective, or The Great Mouse Detective, or The Adventures of The Great Mouse Detective, depending on where on earth, quite literally, you are listening to us from. It had several names in several different countries. Mm. Yeah, the Virgin, the Virgin, <laughs> the version I watched did not have Basil in the title. No, apparently mm. it did in British cinemas, okay. um, but. Um, I had heard of it because I remember it being talked about when I was a teenager, probably by younger members of my family. But it's 1986, so I would have been too old to watch it. That said, it doesn't seem to ever be the film on a person's lips when they mention Disney. So I think it has somewhat fallen into obscurity. Like, oh, so many of these films I still have to watch. It was completely outshone at the box office and in subsequent pop culture reference by a non-Disney animated film also about mice, also released in 1986. This is Jen's era, way more than ours, so she should know it well. Do you want to guess about what it was? Uh, is it like Five or Goes West It or is the, An American Tale, which was yeah. the first part of Five or Goes West, which was a lot more successful. Nonetheless, Basil GMD, as I've just decided to start calling it. <laughs> it is about a mouse rapper. <laughs> <laughs> made Disney enough cash that it escaped bankruptcy after the disaster that was the Black Cauldron. Now, we've not done that yet on Dunleavy Does Disney, so I can't offer you any more illumination on that fact, other than it probably explains why I can't find a single person who owned a copy of it that they could lend me for the purposes of watching it for DDD. Did either of you get round to watching Basil GMD? I did. I have seen it before and watching it made me go, oh, I've seen this before. So, yeah, but I revisited for the purpose of the podcast. No, I didn't. And oh, I, Jen's getting a DDD detention. But I can oh, tell that sounds you. sounds like a stammer, doesn't it? <laughs> I can tell you that I believe, so this is not going to go well because basically I haven't seen it for 31 years. I believe that it is 
the first Disney film I saw at the cinema in Woolwich as a tiny weenie child. And I do remember seeing it at the cinema, but I'm fucked if I remember anything else about it. It's about a mouse who's a detective gem. I liked it, but I was three or four years old, so, you know, probably four. Probably liked most things then. Just m- moving colourful pictures. Shiny things. <laughs> yeah, shiny things. Oh, oh, Dunleavy, that? did you like it? Um, well, I certainly understand why it's not the first film on everybody's lips when you talk about Disney. I was largely ambivalent, to be honest, which is the worst possible outcome for Dunleavy Does Disney because there is nothing to praise and nothing to take the piss out of. It wasn't bad. In fact, it's got some stuff to recommend it, not least Vincent Price as a rat who refuses to accept that he's a rat, despite all evidence to the contrary, including his name being... Professor Rattigan. Rattigan, yeah. But overall, it was quite a lot... Did you like it, Mick? Oh, it was all right. I was a bit poorly on the sofa, and as we have discussed previously in Dunleavy Does Disney's, poorly on the sofa does make you a bit more amenable to things, I think. Um, I I thought it was it was quite sweet and warm and cute and that um, Dr. Dawson, his mouse friend, because obviously it's based on Sherlock Holmes, which you will go into more in a minute. But I think Dr. Dawson, the Watson of the story, was possibly Jack the Ripper. Controversial. That's an interesting theory. Um, uh, I doubt you've got much to back it up, but it's more interesting than anything that occurred <laughs> to me while I was watching it. Maybe that's why I enjoyed it so yeah. much. Basically, it, it's it's Sherlock Holmes, but with mice. And with different character names, it's based on a series of children's books called Basil of Baker Street by someone called Eve Titus. Well, he lives Um, in Sherlock Holmes' house. Yeah, well, they are themselves inspired by, obviously, Arthur Conan Doyle books. Yes, he lives downstairs, sort of in the basement of of Sherlock Holmes' house. Uh, In terms of plot, it opens with a title card that says London 1897. Someone called Scotland Yard, right? (laughs) In London, we have a Scottish toy maker who lives with his Scottish daughter. The Flavishums. Yeah, they're both mice. And then a bat with a wooden leg turns up and kidnaps him. Fidget. She heads off to find Basil, who's got a reputation as a spiffing detective, and en route encounters a morbidly obese mouse, Dr. Dawson. Okay, Jack the Ripper. Uh, Do you see what they did there? Mm -hmm. Now, he's just returned from a war in Afghanistan, which has given me something to ponder over the last few days because there's only two real possibilities here. The first is that... Oh, is this a historical accuracy thing? No. The first is that in this universe, the British Army was using mice as some sort of weapon, which does seem a bit weird, but I reckon if you got enough of them together, you could probably kill a man. If you had enough of them, they could eat you. You'd have, yeah. to, you'd have to pin a man down, cover him in cheese to tempt the mice Well, on. actually, peanut butter or chocolate, they don't really like cheese. Well, that's, that's easier to keep stomach. on a man, yeah. I've, yeah. I've heard, I've read. Um. <laughs> Did the primula not work out? <laughs> Sorry, that is revolting. Oh, dead. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you'd pin a man down, cover him in peanut butter, and then let the mice do their worst. There you go. Yeah. So that's, that's the first could reason work. that he could might work. have been at the war in Afghanistan. And it's not a particularly efficient way of fighting, but every little helps, eh? <laughs> Or the other option is that when humans of Britain declare war on another nation, the mice population of those nations also immediately declare war on each other as well. That sounds reasonable. Afghanistan's notoriously difficult to invade, so, you know... So you you take all the help you can get. Absolutely. Okay, well, that clears that up. Good stuff, guys. So it turns out the toy maker has been kidnapped by the aforementioned Rattigan as part of a frankly bonkers plan to replace the mouse queen, who looks like Queen Victoria, with a clockwork mouse, who looks like Queen Victoria, that he will control. 
No, but really, you got to wish someone had actually done that with the real <laughs> Queen Victoria, right? <laughs> I think they did. It's based on a true story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she, was, she was horrible, she Queen was a Victoria. She was bitch, a terrible she? human she was being. A terrible human being. Anyway, Basil and Dr. Dawson get on the case. They see some dancing in a bar. They float above <laughs> London on a matchbox tied to balloons. Everybody lives happily ever after, except for Rattigan, who falls to his death from St. Stephen's Tower in a marriage of Disney trope and Sherlock Holmes mythology. The end. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Price is pretty good as Rattigan. He is the best thing in it. Yeah. And to be honest, that's not particularly hard. The music's not great. The animation's not great. Oh, it's just all a bit whatever. I mean, to be fair, it doesn't present itself as being way more clever than it actually is. And it doesn't waste huge chunks of my time as all its characters start crying about how much they love each other. So I liked it a lot more than other Sherlock Holmes adaptations that I could <laughs> mention. But there you have it. Um, it's just a, a freewheeling caper, Hannah. Mm. Is there a weird drug sequence in it, or have I made that up? You're thinking uh, of Dumbo. Dumbo's in it. He's one of the toys in the that? There's no, like, bit There's an they... alcohol. Like, the, there's a mouse who's drunk. I was thinking of, like, a sort of hallucinogenic... Oh, and the rat is in, also in league with a cat called Felicia. Yeah, who is hugely morbidly obese as well. Doesn't like cats, does he? No, he does doesn't not like, like cats. Vincent Price used to really scare me as a kid. Vincent Just, Price used to really scare everybody. Can you please no, but tell me who he is? The, so the Michael Jackson song Thriller, he's the voice at the end. But oh, he was is also he? yeah, but he was also like played amazing horror characters. Kind of a Christopher Lee. Was yeah. he pre Christopher Lee or about the same, about time? The same Contemporary. time? Contemporary. Yeah. That's yeah. clever, isn't um, it? but to the point where even listening to the thriller song, the song Thriller mm. is you know, they both mean the same thing, Mick. Carry on. Um, even listening to the song Thriller, I couldn't listen to the end bit because it used to... I was such a wuss that it scared me. And my mum and her neighbour, her mate, once played it to me four times to see if playing it over and over again would stop me <laughs> crying. Thanks, mum. I had a thing as a I'm kid. I'm right now. That's good. I had a thing as a kid. I was really, really scared of Ghost Town by the specials. Oh, it's because, a great tune. Oh, it's great. But it took me about... 20 years to be able to listen to it again because my brother's told me on a car journey on the way home from Madame Two Swords that the ghost of Jack the Ripper was going to haunt me and potentially kill me. It's not a very nice thing to tell a five-year-old. but um, Dr. Dawson, the mouse. Yeah, I didn't know, obviously, that it was about such as Coventry. I used to be really scared of the casual GTX effort. Because <laughs> <laughs> they, really, they had that really spooky music and then just that bit of oil just running like a, along, sometimes through a maze. I remember that now. Yeah. Just, yeah. Oh, it was horrible. I, to be fair, I was scared of absolutely everything when I was little, but we that in particular yeah. used yeah, to freak the shit out of me. How were you with Tony the Tiger from the Frosty's Ads? No, he was all right. He was all right. What's scary about him? Nothing, I just... What's scary about Castrol GTX? <laughs> Again, trying to inject some real... the way it moves, it. you know. Yeah, yeah. and that music. That's creepy. I don't remember the music. <sighs> okay, so back to Basil GMD. What score are you giving it? I am going to give it two. Oh. Two what? Two, I don't know, out of five. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you had five, I don't know, would that not make it worse? I can only apologise for my total apathy. Next week, I am going to watch Chicken Little, which has the ignominy of having the lowest score for any Disney animated <laughs> studio film on Rotten Tomatoes, which is 36%. Because I'm going to watch something I'm not enjoying. It might as well be shit, right? Yeah, sounds okay. good. 
hopefully will have perked up a bit by next week. That's all for this week's Standard Issue podcast. Um, I'm recording this at my desk in my bedroom. As you know, if you listen, it's a very busy road outside. I would usually hide under my duvet, but I just can't be arsed. So, um, yeah, here we are. Here's the traffic. Deal with it. We hope you've had a lovely time. We've had a lovely time. We always have a lovely time. If you like this week's podcast, you might be interested in this week's Sunday Chops, which is a longer version of our interview with Alison Vale, the author of the very, very brilliant book, A Woman Lived Here, which is all about blue plaques and that. She was, honestly, we could have spoken to her for hours and hours and hours. The stories she had to tell were so interesting. So it's, it's, a, it's a really, really good chop. So look out for that on Sunday. And next week is Gigcast Week. And that will be a recording of the show we did in Leamington's Bar in October with our Sarah... Sally Lindsay and Joe Enright and it was cracking so uh, that'll be lovely for you. As always if you would like to rate and review us on iTunes that'd be lovely. Five stars seems perfectly acceptable to us as a score. I don't want to you know put words in your mouth or anything but yeah you know. Also you can follow us on Twitter we are at Standard Issue UK and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and all of that stuff. We've got gigs. We've got gigs in London. The next one is on Sunday, if you're listening to this on Wednesday or indeed before Sunday, the 28th of January. It's sold out, so unlucky. You can't have tickets. But you can have tickets for our next show in London, which is on the 6th of February, and it's going to be cracking. It's, we've got Bridget Christie, Izzy Sutty, Rasheen Connerty, and Alcera Ovs. It'll be ace. Get some tickets. Have a look on our website. It's www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue. I mean, really, it's Sarah's website, but she lets us use it, so that's nice. Thanks to Barry Hilton, who composed and wrote and performed or something, the music, all rights reserved. I think all that really remains for me to say is, indeed, stay frosty, champs. Standard issue for all women.